Now we don't have any value. Hayden. So over the year and change that we've been doing this, you have witnessed many of my forms, right? Different forms of myself. That's true. Some forced and some uh, naturally occurring. Yeah. So you have um, anarchist Eden, tanky Eden, uh, I hate Siberian Eden, all sorts of Edens. And I, I, I'm all for that. I believe in the multiplicity of the self. But... I am sad to inform you that there is one final form, the most insidious one, which you have not yet witnessed. Much like Frieza. Exactly. I'm, although I'm more of like a Vegeta type of guy, I would say. Vegeta. Vegeta. I don't know, man. I, Vegeta. I, only, I, saw, I saw Dragon Ball Z uh, dubbed into Hebrew, so I have no idea how to pronounce it. I, okay, so I really need to find on the internet now what the Hebrew dub of Dragon Ball Z sounds like. <laughs> that sounds... <laughs> uh, okay, so the final Eden <laughs> form is conservative Eden. Politically conservative Eden. And I am about to unleash that terrible form onto this episode. Because, Beautiful. Yes. I have had it up to here you can't see me like you know this body signing my my head um with identity politics in science fiction and beautiful beautiful let me explain Good what start. I mean. <laughs> yes. yes here we go this is the most conservative that i get right like complaining about some identity politics that that's the most conservative that i can get so back in 2013 everything was bad right just like now that's right. Uh, people who think it was not as bad are wrong and incorrect. Yeah, uh, no, I was there. It was bad. Yeah, it was bad. So one of the bad things that happened was Sad Puppies, right? Sad Puppies is a name for uh, a loosely affiliated group of people who try to influence the Hugo Awards with um, voting slates, right? Like these voting yeah. groups that, that all these people would... Uh, basically gang press others into voting for these books and then they would disturb the um, you know successful and orderly ongoings of the award and just to be clear they chose the Hugo Awards because the Hugo Awards is the longest running prize in science fiction or fantasy since 1953 it's basically the Oscars of SFF, right? It's also the only one that um, the voting slates are given to people who attend a specific convention, so you don't have to necessarily break fully into the industry to get a voting slate, which would be a lot harder if you're trying to yeah. mass manipulate the votes. Yeah, exactly. So it's like this perfect concoction <laughs> of like open to populism and also popular, right? Um, and so they, they targeted uh, the awards quite unsuccessfully, one has to say, where even the the books that, or, or not just books, also novels and comic books and so on, they tried to, well, they did they did end up nominating just uh, the, the people who actually choose the winners decided to go with no award, right? Basically um, denying Sad Puppies this glamorous victory that they were trying to get. 
2015 was kind of like the height of the campaign well such exalted and magnificent figures as vox day and brad torgerson and if you don't know who these people are then count yourself extremely fortunate um (laughs) were the ones who were leading the extremely unsuccessful um charge that was the the height of the campaign and, and because of their loss um it kind of fizzled out and it never really returned to anything meaningful with 2016 basically the last year where this mattered. Along the way, they um, conflicted with figures like George R. R. Martin, Neil Gaiman, Neil Stephenson, John Scalzi, and so on and so forth. Connie Willis, who declined to present the award in a very Chad move, I must say, um, because of the influence of this group. And overall, you know, this group was tied into stuff like Gamergate and the alt-right and so on. Like the whole thing was SFF is or the Yugos specifically are, you know, doing affirmative action or whatever and only nominating non-white cis men, which, good. Um, Like, I hope that that was true. Um, Right? Like, uh, you've described an ideal world that uh, I'm not sure actually exists. (laughs) Yeah, conservatives Um, threatening us with a good time. So, okay, sad puppies fizzled out, and... I mean, it was an interesting moment because it did get some uh, echo outside of the SFF community because of the 2016 uh, Trump campaign and, and, and eventual uh, victory and the rise of the alt-right and all that shit. They, they kind of like got, you know, um, windfall attention from all of that stuff. And it kind of broke Even- what is unfortunately sometimes called the science fiction ghetto wherein SFF is consigned to this like section of the of culture that no one really talks about, which we could argue how much that still exists with the rise of Marvel and other like science fiction adaptations. But that's not the point. The point is that because of the attention that um, Sad Puppies got, they actually gloriously ended up ushering a pendulum reaction, right? Wherein... A lot of the SFF world was, hey, wouldn't it be actually good if we only gave these awards to <laughs> non-cis white men? Um, and it, it started a lot of uh, uh, different uh, events that kind of snowballed into where we are today. So, of course, we had the renaming of the John W. Campbell Award. Again, a good thing. Um, we had the rise of N.K. Jemison, which started before that, to be clear, but really did enjoy a lot of popularity following that. And then the Okafor um, revisiting Octavia Butler and and so on and, and so forth. To the point where today, huge swaths of the <clears throat> SFF community and specifically the Yugo Awards and other awards like it are more and more becoming associated with a very specific type of not only author, but also work. And that's where we start to get into the problematic stuff. Because, remember, no ethical consumption under capitalism, right? We, that's not just a slogan. When we say that, what we mean is that everything you do, including the good stuff, will be um, suborned to serve capitalism. Now, who is capitalism's um, agent in this uh, in this case in this community in this industry? The publishing houses, 
right? The publishing houses are the concentration of control over the means of production, right? Literally, that's how you make books. You need the publishing houses to make them. And those publishing houses are, in some cases, massive, massive concentrations of wealth and power, right? Um, I don't know if people listening to this have been following up, but there's a huge drive of centralization um, happening across the publishing uh, world right now. And this drive for centralization is the same drive for centralization that we're seeing all across the markets, right? With this lie of supposedly inflation and all that nonsense, which is just excuse for corporate centralization of the market, right? This is a tendency of players in the market wanting to buy out their competition instead of competing, working together in this cartel-like system. So just to wrap this uh, thought around, Tor.com, which is probably today the most prolific and most famous of the SFF publishing houses, is owned by Macmillan, right? Macmillan <laughs> well, a massive, massive publishing group, right? Yeah, they've been one of the big ones for like decades now. Yeah. Decades and decades. Exactly. So all of this to say that the pendulum swing that happened after the sad puppies campaign and in general in society, right? Um, you know, kind of where we saw the Biden presidency come in, this kind of like liberal blue resurgence or whatever has uh, also overtaking SFF. Now, the problem with that, and I think if you've been listening to this podcast, you know where this is going, is that it's all liberalism, right? And it suffers from all of the problems of liberalism. One of the main ones being a surface level understanding of the interaction between politics, economics, and identity, leading to what we now call, erroneously, I think, because there's a better version of it out there, um, identity politics, where basically a person's or a work's or a, or a community's worth are solely measured by which subgroups of identities they associate with, right? And that leads to everything that we've seen on Twitter and in other places, but mainly on Twitter, where people, <laughs> you know, just lead every single conversation with their identifications, right? Oh, I'm part of this group. I'm part of that group. Therefore, I am, my voice is more prominent in this conversation. So, and, and don't get me wrong. Sometimes that's true, right? Like, when we talk about issues affecting a specific community, members of that community should get uh, primacy for their voices to be heard. But that is not where a certain discourse and certain conversation should end. It's it's the sort of classic problem that we see um, that um, Marxist commenters, um, even ones like Fred Hampton, so classic uh, American black um, thinker and writer who was... Uh, assassinated by the FBI at the age of 27, um, like horrifically young and really, really brilliant man, um, commented that experience doesn't equate to consciousness. And the whole thought there being that one can be a member of a group and not necessarily be brought to consciousness of the material underpinnings of the firmness of the interaction of that group. You can be a victim to something without necessarily understanding what it is in full that you are a victim to. It does give you a better position towards that insight in certain ways, obviously, because it's your lived experience. But 
having an experience doesn't mean you necessarily understand it. Um, and the best way to think about a proof of that would be like the necessity for things like therapy for people. Yeah. Mere going through a trauma, as real as that trauma is, as undeniable as that trauma is, doesn't mean that we've perfectly parsed it. Otherwise, we wouldn't have things like a post-traumatic stress disorder response to traumas that we go through. We'd instantly integrate them properly. The fact that we don't is sort of, and that's a human thing. That's not like anyone failing to integrate it. It's that we don't immediately rise to consciousness of something merely by experiencing it. And obviously this is in, in a medium length version, the problem of a liberalized version of identity politics, where it assumes that anyone who's had an experience therefore now has access to an ideal, if not perfect analytic of that experience. Um, instead of being a bit more rigorous with self-sorting of like anyone who has an experience can certainly comment on it because that's your purview once you've had that. But social credit and social prominence should somewhat be accorded to people who have like stronger or more actionable insights or more um, the way that we do with any other kind of data, especially something that does tie deeply to material uh, reality. Like that's sort of the other mystification that happens when we talk about identity in a lot of places is it becomes uh, the sort of from on high German idealist version that it's like, it's not tied to the, to the world. You have some abstract identity that sits outside of reality and your body and the material world is just a vehicle through which that identity experiences things, which we don't hold that view in any other position. I mean, that it also sort of touches on certain problems that we see arise when people talk about, like, some old discourse from, like, a decade and a half ago, a little bit more as well, that, like, being gay isn't a choice because who would choose to experience that oppression? That's fine for a certain number of people. That's going to be very true. But that doesn't mean that you can't choose and the predication of certain, like, uh, rights or dignities being like fought for uh being based on well they didn't choose it so now we have to fight for their dignity that's a really bad yeah. position rather than like well no you deserve it even if you did we yeah. see this now with transness where it's like certain people in trans spaces try to gatekeep the notion that like you can't choose to so, be trans and it, yeah yeah that, that, that's a fantastic point because here's the thing and I, I've, I've spoken about this on in the past on the podcast, but also on heavy blog, this idea that whenever you see gatekeeping, you should look for the corporation behind it, right? Because capitalism wants the entire planet to be a supermarket. Okay. Yep. In a sense that everything is in orderly aisles with easy to read barcodes so that it can be passed because what can be passed can be understood and what can be understood can be sold okay and yeah i'm doing foucault right it's not like a an original idea but it bears repeating when someone is gatekeeping something they do it some often unconsciously but they do it in service of this ordering logical machine by the way our episode on um, keller easterling's extra statecraft is a good starting point if you want to dive dive deeper into these ideas of how ordering the world enables capitalist systems to control it. And this is exactly 
what is happening with what Langdon mentioned, the transness and so on, as, as transness becomes more and more vocal and more and more, uh, you know, people who might have uh, in, in previous decades or centuries stayed silent out of fear. And again, transness has always existed, always. It has merely been repressed. But now, as we're seeing some sort of rising popularity, of course, we're seeing backlash and all that stuff, but we're also seeing a codification of the aesthetics of transness, right? The correct ways in which to perform transness. By the way, this is something that also happened to the um, gay community, right? Back when it was having its original, um, I don't know if you want to call it renaissance, or like, you know, when the pride was starting up and so on, and and, and gayness uh, uh, slowly became more and more accepted in mainstream society, it too had lots of people the, forming elites, right, that were policing um, the gates. And, and by the way, the end result is what we have today, where pride is an advertising billboard. Right for corporations because the aesthetics were figured out, they were passed, they were put into neat little boxes so that Nike could sell shoes. Now the exact same thing is happening with SFF. So because I am allergic to these things, they piss me off. And usually it's also uh, uh, um, uh, like, like a band aid for shitty literature. Right? Yeah. I have I have like detect uh, I have uh, built a radar to detect these releases. Right? Releases which again conservative. Eden, I know I sound like a conservative, but pieces of literature that have only gotten famous because they do identity politics. Right? And not necessarily because they're great works of literature. Now, of course, we're getting into opinion territory, right? And some people will swear up and down by these books that I'm about to malign, and I'm going to keep as many like. Uh, titles out of this as possible. But I think one of the major examples is Gideon the Ninth. Gideon the Ninth is all over the fucking internet. You can't fucking get away from this book. Every single person is recommending it and reading it. I could not get through 25% of this book. It is badly written. And I apologize to the author <laughs> if they're listening for some reason. Go do something useful with your time, not listen to two guys like talking about this shit. I, I, I just could not get into it. And and when I tried to like find reviews of it and opinions of it, so many of them were focused on, you know, the characters and how cool it was to see um gay characters being gay and, and being flamboyant about it and, and like outspoken and, and, and okay with it and to hear like coming of age stories of these characters. And and that's important and fine, by the way. Like I don't think that representation doesn't matter at all. But I do think that an entire work of literature predicated solely on the fact that their char- the characters belong to some identity or other is not a good basis for a literary movement. And and that's that's uh, uh, an okay example. Like, the writing is not for me, but I don't think it's completely devoid of value. That's the top of the, the cream of the crop. It has now become the case that, like, if you go to Tor.com's published books or even worse you go to like io9's top 50 science fiction books of 2022 or 2021 they all look the same okay so let me let me break down the the aesthetics you have the yellow cyberpunk font from cyberpunk the game right that popularized this font immensely last year and the year before that sometimes and often you have the neon pink um, the font will be this blocky capital letter sort of sort of font, and 
it will be some sort of take on space opera because that's seeing like a huge renaissance. And now I've like outed myself on these books that I don't like, as you can figure out which titles I'm talking about. Um, and the world is going to be some sort of like gritty, not, not grim dark, but kind of like steampunky, oil punky version of a space opera. Those, the main character is going to be, again, which is fine. I don't mind the actual identities. I just mind the, the, using them as crutches. It's going to be non-binary or, or otherwise gender non-conforming. And you can already tell the plot point by fucking point, right? The, it, it, it's the worst. Now, sorry, I know, I know I'm ranting, <laughs> but one last thing. It, no, go on. You go on. No, 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 so, no, I'll do the thing later, yeah. So I have a couple thoughts about what you said. Some, it, most of them, uh, four. So the one point against is uh, that... Uh, Gareth and I covered um, Harrow that my mic is definitely too loud now. Whatever, whatever. We can fix this in post. Uh, uh, <laughs> Gareth and I covered um, Harrow the Ninth when it came out. And while I definitely, I'm one of the proponents of the book who is cognizant of the arguments that you brought up as ones that I think are ultimately fair ones. There is a definite... Um, First to be polite and then to be impolite. The polite version is there's certain elements of the prose craft that are going to turn off certain readers. And I think that that's an unfortunate reality. The books definitely get a lot more um, conceptually adventurous, um, especially in the second and third book where you start playing with like altered memories and like concatenations of souls and different things like that, where you get some, some really interesting stuff. The impolite version is that she peppers her language with so much, um, to be frank, like Tumblrisms and like giddy internetisms that it becomes hard, not only hard to get past them for, for some people, which I think is a totally fair thing. Um, being, being put off by the prose of a book is the ultimate fair critique of any given good, book. Good. Um, I, I want to say, but then there's the, I, I, I had read a different book this year that was, Hugo awarded, and this book had the phrase "amaze balls" in it. That sucks. Um, and that's like, especially as because our fundamental thing here at Death Sentence isn't. And when I say that, I don't mean like it as a corporation. Me, Gareth, and Eden are here because we all agree on this point. The thing that's the powerful element of books of art is is sort of things like when it comes to literature it is the prose we can get into goddamn near any genre under the sun because it's the prose that's the compelling thing it's this this conceptual the conceptual artistic flow genre in a lot of ways is more like the window dressing that that tailors like how you point that but that's the engine like the everything else is the chassis this is the engine and so someone having a problem with the engine is the ultimate like okay yeah that's fair um and that's something that I think she sets herself up for. Um, it's either going to connect with some people or it's going to massively disconnect with some. Um, interviewing her, I think, changed my view on it in that she writes exactly how she speaks. And that connected some things in my head of like, okay, this isn't an insincere thing. This is someone actually putting down the story exactly as it appears in their head, pretty obviously. But that also doesn't erase. It's one of those things where like, I can't, I can't pretend to be any kind of uh, critic of valor or use and not acknowledge that like 
Some people are going to hit that it's a space opera and it includes internets to contemporary or contains references rather to contemporary internet culture. And they're going to go, no, like, no, this has broken the spell. And like, I'm here for the spell. If you break the spell, I'm gone. Um, And that's, I agree with you. I'm able to defend that one on some conceptual ground because ultimately I think it's still definitively a cut above a lot of the books that you are talking about, which this is where we get to the other bit. I 100% goddamn agree there. And it's so goddamn frustrating because we're also having a renaissance of really not even necessarily transgressive, but just vivaciously imaginative queer literature, uh, Latina literature, um, black literature, trans literature, uh, global literature. So like all these different global scenes as well, not just American versions, which is obviously the other problem when we talk about a lot of this work is when they're talking about you know, accentuating these marginalized identities. That's great. They mean, though, Anglosphere marginalized identities. We're not really seeing from these places translated works. We're not seeing, like when you talk to someone, this comes up in the video game and manga world a lot. When you talk about contemporary queer issues of even something as relatively similar to the West in terms of its interactions with these objects as Japan. Not identical, but much closer than, say, like, um, Kenyan queer identities. Um, The fact that there are any differences whatsoever get misread by a lot of these dumb fucks who've not read a single thing as certain writers being either much more liberatory and emancipatory or much more queer phobic than they actually are because they really don't understand any context for these issues outside of their immediate one. And this is reflected in their interests. They're not interested in a generalized emancipatory movement for queerness, for blackness, for um, for any of these things. They, they're so, only interested in the one immediately around them. Yeah. So I, I, I super agree with what you're saying. And just to build on that, like my problem with the um, internet speak in... <laughs> in um, Tamsin Muir's books is not the speak itself, but it goes back to my radar, right? Yeah. Nine times out of 10, when you hold that language in your hand and you start unraveling the line that feeds into it, you'll find Tor.com, right? That's you'll right. find <laughs> publishing houses making a killing on this. So, and like you said, um, getting the ninth and, and everything after it is like the meshuga of this genre, right? It's the precursor that's better than anything that came after it. Yeah, I said it. Um, like, meshuga is not gent, but they gave birth to it, right? So kind of like this book, which is alongside N.K. Jemison and other authors that we cited here, gave birth to this subgenre, but is one step above. By the way, I also did not like N.K. Jemison's stuff, but I, I do think it is a cut above, like you said, the stuff that came before. But here's the real problem after it's on. Here's the real problem. The real problem is that these aesthetics and this language bleeds into the readers. Yes. And once <laughs> it bleeds into the readers, it creates a discourse. And that discourse is super poisonous. So let me give you one specific example and then I'll talk about the larger case. So by the way, I'm going to be reading from someone's review on Goodreads. You could probably use, the, like, if you wanted to listen to my words and type them out in Google, you could find this review. Do not harass this person. Do yeah. not contact this person. This is an example. 
Yeah, we are. Not... This is this is a good general point. Whenever we talk about anything like that yeah. here, we're trying to talk about general cases and conceptual forms. This is a way to say, do not ever fucking harass someone that we bring up. Um, yeah. It's it's not about them because that's that's also an ultimate liberalism to make it about a specific person's specific actions rather than like we're trying to think about formal interactions. Yeah. Um, so also don't be a fucking dick. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so this is a review on one of these books. OK, trust me, I don't want to name the book, but this is like it looks like exactly what I described. Yellow cyberpunk color, salmon corporate pink on the background blocky letters um okay from from tor.com i think or they're like a sub publisher or whatever and 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 one of the reviews so when i go to goodreads i read the four star reviews right because i don't care about the five stars because no book is a five star book except for like 10 books ever written um and then the twos and the ones i don't care i don't want to know why people hated the book i, I read the, the people who liked it but have things to say about yeah, the book it, which is usually like, the four star and it's like what's interesting about this book yeah exactly so it, it starts um, It starts like this. This was a pretty exciting space opera. When I heard about a sci-fi book that was filled with lesbian, bisexual, and non-binary characters, my interest was immediately piked. Out of the gate, exactly what we said. This is the first thing that they say, right? I heard about the identities represented in the book, and that's why I was interested in the book. And then they say, and of course, when I saw the cover, I knew I had to read this. <laughs> so like, it's exactly what we're saying, right? Identity politics, and then there's the accepted aesthetic that then lures them in to read the book, which is fine. And then they manage that the, they they mention that I, I do want to apologize to the publisher. It's it's not all at com, but whatever it could might as well have been for being a little late with this review. Between watching the Senate returns, then an actual insurrection, and dealing with a migraine on and off for three days, I could not get into the flow of the book. I'm sorry, again, to this person. I don't know you, and, and I'm just using you and, and maybe picking on you a bit. But, like, immediately following <laughs> up the identity politics with, by the way, I'm a Democrat. By the way, the 6th of January is the worst thing that's ever happened to our nation. It's an insurrection, whatever. And we've talked about the fucking whatever 6th of January was, but it wasn't this, you know, ring the toxin bell, the republic is under threat, blah, 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 let's like hire 500,000 more cops to protect us from the evil like QAnon shamans. And then also immediately going to talk about, and, and again, which is fair, that they suffer from migraines, that's the thing they do, but immediately tying in your own disability or your own uh, um, identity or your own uh, physical status into the discussion is like, it's like from a message sheet, okay? It's, it's, if you had asked me to write this review myself, if you had told me, write a review as a, a liberal, maybe they're not a liberal, right? But I, I find it very hard to believe. Um, <laughs> for, for like this kind of SFF, this is what I would have written or very close to it. And okay, so what's the problem? If, if it's not the person, what is the problem? The problem is, like Foucault said and many others like him, this discourse, these cues, this, uh, these habits are power, right? They are activating power on the person who is reading them, on the person who would like to not conform to them, to not write the review in such a way, to not write the literature in such a way. And that brings us to the general example. These people, the people who are a part of the 
tor.com, SFF, OOWU, tender queer, liberal kind of science fiction that we've been getting, those are the people that crucified Isabel Fall. Yes. Right? Those are the people who, who um, when, when, when a trans person wrote something that did not, that was actually radical, right? That did not conform to their conceptions of how a science fiction story about transness should be told, they crucified them. Right? And they crucified them with discourse. They crucified them with the power of the norm. They are building and have built a norm. And anybody who does not conform to this norm will be punished. They will be the subject of power because that's how power works. That's ultimately the same problem that I have because it's books that I don't like, even hesitating to call them bad books because ultimately that's that's not really what I, I don't care. I don't care if they're good or bad. They're, they're just, they're definitely not books that I'm super interested in. That's fine. Books that are not my interest have existed since time immemorial. They will exist forevermore as people who are opposed broadly to sort of gatekeeping of the arts, especially as an expressive form. You have to acknowledge that art being made that isn't to your taste is ultimately, at least in part, a sign of how big the world is, which is a kind of at least a neat thing, if not, if not <laughs> always a comforting thing. Um, that, and so ultimately that's not the point. That's not an issue. Like the fact that people are making books that I'm not interested in and other people are buying them, that's fine. And the fact that we have discourse from people who don't read much in the way of theory and are for some fucking reason proud of this and then carry out the worst goddamn thoughts I've ever seen in my life. That's also happened since time immemorial. That's not ever really going to change. I'm not, I'm annoyed by that, but I'm not bothered by that. I'm bothered by exactly the things that, that you brought up that it's like, we see this power wielded against the production of other modes, not just on the um the publishing end which is a very real end that's sort of that's a quiet thing that no one really wants to take any kind of accountability for um because to be fair under a liberal system there is no individual accountability for that they're not saying like there isn't any to be taken because it's not anything any one person did but now a lot of places aren't really interested in the kind of uh like uh deeply esoteric and wonderfully strange wings that some of this stuff can go in. Yeah. Uh, but we, we then have obviously the more pernicious end that we see the machine of social punishment for not performing an identity correctly happen again and again and again and again. And it's not the reason why we're bringing this up is not because we think it's new. It's not because we think the queers have lost the plot. I've seen a lot of really insane shit, and I know that you have too, Eden, and that's, abs to be clear, not what we're saying. This isn't a new relation whatsoever. It's just maddening that it's this lesson that we can point to historically again and again and again that never seems to be learned of these, like, when you form, this is the way that you perform this identity, and if you don't do it, people within that identity will, like, silence and crush you because of... This is, if nothing else, a reframed version of fucking respectability politics. And that's yeah. only yeah. like a couple decades old. Like that's yeah. uh, when we see the endless discourse about like 
the the most meaningless shit should there be kink at pride this is meaningless because pride pretty much from the late 70s for or not the late 70s sorry from about the moment that awareness of aids as not strictly a gay disease but one which was genocidal towards queer communities due to policy decisions once that cracked something happened in the engines of pride and it no longer became as strictly emancipatory and um, radical. It just became a will and grace parade. Um, that will, it, capitalism will co-opt anything it can sink its fucking teeth into. So that's not a failure yep. of pride. That's everything as a lifespan. But yeah, it's just, it's, it drives me up the goddamn wall, especially because we always see people carrying out these machineries of power to punish those first within their community and then in doing so annihilating any real sense of solidarity um, that gives it strength to stand up to these other forces outside of the community. This is the perennial engine that like weakens and destroys movements. Yep. Okay, so I want to end on a positive note before we actually get to today's book. And so I want to recommend four books that are adjacent to this aesthetic, adjacent to this movement, and discuss much of the same topics, but do it in an interesting literary way without relying mostly on the identities of their characters, but also, of course, not completely shutting out identity because we are not, quote-unquote, tankies that think that class is the only thing that exists and has no interaction with anything else. Identity is an important part of the human experience, right? So it's not about swinging the pendulum the other way, which is what the right wants you to do, because when the right erases identity, the only identity that remains is the white identity and the yep. male identity, um, but finds a balance, finds a common ground between all sorts of complicated issues, because at the end of the day, good literature is subtle right it, it 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 has a balance of flavors and ideas and focuses Foci. Yeah, the, we look for the synthetic human the synthesis of all aspects of the human not the tokenized human exactly fantastic way to put it so four examples one of course becky chambers a psalm for the wild built this is one of the softest most comforting books you'll read it's about automation nature finds you yourself, and so on. Main character, non-binary. Um, very interesting story about self-exploration and coming to terms with not only who you are, but also what you want to do and what kind of place you want to have in your community. Second one, uh, The Stars Are Legion by Cameron Hurley. No, that's very a great one. That's a great odd, one. Like almost body horror, science fiction, space opera about the, the body of... Uh, women, both cis and otherwise, um, pregnancy, uh, autonomy, independence, family, memory, and a bunch of other weird shit. Like, this is a very weird book, but it's done exceptionally well. And again, all the um, identity parts of it are extremely subtle and hinted at instead of, you know, shoved down your throat. Um, the third book, one that I recently read, I bought this on my trip to Vegas and read before I even set foot back home, um, is Spear by Nicola Griffith, who also wrote Ammonite, which is a very good book. This is a retelling of Arthurian myth focused on Percival, but it's a, it's a distaff, right? So Percival is a woman. Um, 
but, but this woman is gay um, and she's born to this kind of like fairy creature I, I don't want to spoil too much of it and then she goes to make her name with Arthur's knights and so on extremely fucking good um, it, it deals with you know uh, same sex attraction in, in, in very interesting ways uh, and it's just very well written um, I don't say this a lot so you know I mean it this made me think of Earthsea like the 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 place of nature, how magic works, the softness of the, the language used, the, the inventiveness of it. it. Fantastic, fantastic book. Also very comforting, if that's what you're looking for. And, of course, um, how could I not end with A Memory Called Empire by Arkady Martin. Absolutely. My my fiancé introduced me to those books. Yeah. Um, without... Di- I could do what I think is the good version of the, like, uh, the uwu uh, response in that there is someone whose name in that book is sports utility vehicle. Um, <laughs> but it, and, and they explain why the naming convention exists. So it's like, it, it's really funny to think about out of context, but um, yeah. Yeah. The, oh yeah. That's sorry. I'm just, mm, I'm, Fanta- I'm fantastic book that has a lot of really interesting things, not just about individual identity, but also how identity communicates with coincides with resists imperialism uh hegemony knowledge production and a bunch of other stuff and then when you read this the bonus is that you can also read the second one which is even yes. better a desolation it, called peace it's uh, there's something beautiful about arcady's writing um that a lot of these um these writers who we've talked about as well as a number outside that are even critical of it fall prey to and i'm speaking as a science fiction fan to another science fiction fan. And if you're listening to this and you're not one of us, um, you're worth less than us as a person. (laughs) Know that, come to terms with that. It's objectively true. Um, Sit with it. So many people are afraid of or ashamed of hard science fiction because they have a thought. Now, this is the defense of it. They have a thought of what that means and what directions that means you go that is reinforced by a lot of the social interaction caused by fans of hard science fiction, which are often, I'll say it, fucking chuds. That's that's fair. But the thing I really love about Arcady is that she understands, and this gets into, I've been looking for Egan's diaspora in every fucking bookstore that I've gone (laughs) to for the past year and a half because of you. I could just order it, but it's like, that takes the hunt away. Um, But of... Also, I've been looking for Nomon everywhere. Um, still have not found any Harkaway. I hate the bookstores around me. Um, again, <laughs> I'll probably just wind up ordering it. Um, yeah. But uh, Arcady being one, one person similar to the books that I just listed of not being afraid of hard science fiction because seeing it as not a limiter, not like, oh, I'm constrained by the realities of math and science, but going like, this can make me think questions about my story and its thematics that I never would have had if I didn't have that limit there. Like if I didn't have this constriction, I never would have evolved it in the direction that I did. So like, it feels constantly imaginative and rich because of its interpolation of these harder uh, sci-fi elements rather than like, I don't know. It's tight. And that's something that I miss a lot from people who either fall into this, um, for lack of a better term, like torification of science fiction, which Gareth and I liked for a period when it was starting and then both sort of hit a quiet, like quietly dial down. Um, Yeah. um, But also critics of it seem to be ashamed of because both 
both people who like and some of the loudest people who dislike that sort of wave seem to be ashamed of like science fiction being sci-fi. Yeah. And Arcady's not. And that's, I just love that. A hundred percent. Okay. Music. So I want to talk to you about a band called Relica with a Q. These guys. Uh, My progressive rock senses are tingling. Mm, sort of. So these guys are <laughs> from Australia, and they do this very interesting meld between progressive tech metal and uh, new metal. So they basically take the good stuff from, I would say, the mid-era of what we now call gent. So your Tesseracts um, and, and bands of that nature, monuments back when they were good, and, and that kind of <laughs> stuff. So like chuggy but interesting and like not after the burial right like not like sumerian core but like yeah energetic dynamic very progressive and interesting um the stuff that's music. more interested towards like melodic information but interpolating interesting rhythmic patterns rather than just rhythm exactly but bad rhythm <laughs> exactly less percussive and more chromatic um and they take that and they marry it with guess what identity the uh, lead single for this um, group is Monique Pym, and it's very obvious that uh, she is sort of the beating heart of this uh, group. If you look at the uh, cover art, which is her uh, painted and with a lot of broken glass around her that is mirroring her eyes and creating this almost like um, Cthulhu-esque kind of like uh, multiplication of her eyes, but is of course supposed to um, manifest a broken identity and looking for yourself. The album is called I Don't Know What I Am, so it's not very subtle. <laughs> um, but the tracks explore these questions of um, identity, belonging, and so on. I think, from what I can tell online, and I, I'm sorry if this is wrong, that sh she or her family are also immigrants into Australia. Maybe not this generation, maybe the previous one or the one before that. So there is that element. And the music also um, has um, Middle Eastern influences in some of its instruments and some of the scales that are used. So I'm going to play The Bearer of Bad News, which is the second track. It is the most new metal-y of the tracks because it has like a rap section. But think about the good new metal rap. Right? Like Pain of Salvation. You're like, <laughs> I've harmed Eden. I've caused him pain. You have inflicted psychic damage onto me. Um, <laughs> I was going to say hybrid theory. Right? <laughs> um, so keep that in mind. It, it's a short track, but it's very energetic and very well produced. And I can't wait to see what Relica uh, are going to do next. So this is The Bell of Bad News by Relica.
Okay, now let's talk about a guy who sucks. <laughs> uh, our favorite genre of literature. Our, our, our favorite genre of literature. And if you thought that Severian sucks, then oh boy, do I have a guy for you. We today are discussing um, Physiognomy by Jeffrey Ford. This is the first volume in his Well-Built City trilogy. The book was published in 1997, so it's been around. It's actually quite celebrated in certain circles of literature, but I have not yet gotten around to it. I Ford, Yeah, it was... It was one of those things where when when you had suggested it, you gave me the the quick pitch, and I immediately was like, "Yo, Eden, this is yeah. why you on the show, damn!" <laughs> and then looked it up, and it's going back to sort of the thing about the Hugo's. Um, the, it, this won the World Fantasy Award in '98, and uh, it turns out the World Fantasy Award. You look back at its list of winners; these are all fucking bangers. Yeah. Also, like weirdo stuff. Yeah, like that's that's. The thing is that they really um, they they look at fantasy as like a modality. It's very like a Le Guin esque comprehension of what fantasy is that allows it to dabble in literary, science fictional, horror, um, yeah. experimental, anything. Yeah, just ugh. so uh, spoiler, you, all of that shows up. Yeah. So <laughs> if you look at a Ford's list of uh, wins and nominations, you kind of get a sense for the space in which he operates and all of the different influences that make up his um his writing style so world fantasy award Hugo award nebula award theodore sturgeon award okay so far sff and stuff like that but then he was also nominated for um the international horror guild award uh the edgar Allan poe award the bram stoker award and the grand prix de l'imaginaire so you have a very wide uh, cross-section here of different kinds of genre literature interacting. And that is definitely the case for the physiognomy. By the way, uh, this is a recurring theme in some of the stuff that we covered. Jeffrey Ford also was a guest lecturer at the Clarion Workshop, which we have discussed on this podcast before. Um, was, was it on this podcast or one of my other podcasts? Maybe it was on Anarchy SF where we talked about the Clarion Workshop and how important it is. I think it was on here. Um, in any case, Physiognomy. So let me give Wait, you the... Wait, was he part of Clarion? Yeah, yeah. He was a guest lecturer at Clarion. That's... Uh, I have I have my own pet feelings about Clarion as yeah. a, uh, a parallel gatekeeping force similar to Tor. For sure. That's... 100%. No, that's why I mentioned it. So I don't remember if we talked about this here on Anarchy SF with Yanai, my other podcast about science fiction. But uh, I, th Clarion... I think I think it was there. Uh, was there. I so, don't... so let me just so that <laughs> this makes sense. Like if people don't know what the Clarion Writers Workshop is, um, Clarion is, is, is a six week workshop that, that was originally it grew out of um, Damon Knight and, and Kate Wilhelm's uh, conference. We won't go into that. Um, but like two very, very important characters, mostly in editing and publishing science fiction, again, with a recurring theme of like the publishing control um, over uh, literature. Um, it was founded in Pennsylvania um, at Clarion, Clarion State College. And ever since um, then, like, I'm not going to read you the alumni, uh, but... A lot of people, including Nicola Griffith, which I just cited, by the way, uh, Cameron Hurley, which I also cited, um, 
and and more and Tamsin Muir, which we talked about, and the Okafor, which we talked about, Kim Stanley Robinson, um, Monica Byrne, I think was here, uh, Bruce Sterling, Vandermeer, um, and many, many, many more. So this is an interesting context for the book we are about to discuss. Okay, Physiognomy. What's the premise? There's a city called the well-built city. And this is supposedly the perfect society. Think about Plato's Republic, which is very clearly supposed to mirror. However, <laughs> it's more realistic than Plato's Republic <laughs> in the sense that the person who controls it, Dracton Below, yes, that's his last name, Below, sucks. Like, he really sucks. He's this mad tyrant with... Uh, uh, it's unclear whether they're actually magic, but he, he seems to be omniscient. It's like he's everywhere. He knows everything. He has this military police. Um, but what he doesn't have is immortality, which is also a Plato reference, right? Like the one thing that the tyrant doesn't have is he doesn't live forever. So dispatching his top-tier agent, Clay, that's the guy who also sucks, our protagonist, <laughs> um, uh, below dispatches him to the frontier of his city-state slash empire to a town called Anamasobia. Well, rumor has it there is a fruit. Potentially the fruit has come from heaven, um, but what the locals are saying is that if you eat the fruit, you live forever. Now, Clay is not just a top agent. He is part of... He's a physiognomist. Um, the physiognomist. I, yeah. Sorry, I'm just I'm I'm laughing because uh, of what you're about to say. Yeah. So the physiognomists <laughs> um, read the faces of people. If you're not familiar, this is an actual quote unquote. <laughs> lots of quotes. Science. It's a super racist science. Basically, yeah. this man is like the the premise of this world is that race science is also literally real. <laughs> Yeah. So wait, we'll get to whether it's real or not. He's Mengele. yeah, a, yeah, yeah. That was a bit yeah. of a setup, but <laughs> he's Mengele basically, right? Like he's the top Nazi doctor. Um, he's looking for, for skull shapes. Exactly, doing phrenology and all that shit. But and this is extremely important that you understand. He completely believes in the physiognomy. Like the physiognomy only tells truth, and he is the top physiognomist, right? So he has this absurd belief that. Within five seconds of meeting you, he knows everything about you, everything you'll ever do, anything you've ever did, and all the potentials, everything you've ever done, sorry, all your potentials, whether you're like a liar or a nice person. And this is also important, 99% of people in his idea absolutely suck. Like to the extent that you could just kill them and nothing would be lost. So he's also like this radical Malthusian... Uh, physiocrat uh, and this guy goes to this uh, town to find who stole the fruit from heaven this is the premise without any spoilers uh, before we like start to break it down <laughs> I so one quick bit is that for those unaware physiognomy is uh a thing that gets cited, I'm actually going to start more from the present understanding of it and then work backwards. Not going to do a deep dive into it. As a thing outside of this book, 
it is a critical term that we use to discuss the depictions of things like um, amputees, um, uh, I, I'm, people who are smaller or larger than the typical person, people with disfigurements or birth defects or things like that, as um, frightening in a way that then also positions them closer to evil. So the association of physical deformity from some sort of normative standard with being evil um, comes from is is what this uh, term is used for. Now we use it in a critical capacity, and you can't see me smirking now because obviously that's terrible. But it didn't come from that. It came from a period where people thought that this was literally true, to some extent at least. There's some people where it would be things like, well, I know God is the great controller of the world. And nothing is without a purpose. So if you look really ugly, it must be because you're evil. Um, this is the exact same thought that emerges from the Bible of why, uh, and certain Christian sects believe this, why black people are black. It's because they are closer to Cain, the first prominent sinner. Um which is super duper racist. That's a, you know, <laughs> an extremely racist thing to think. Um, uh, and so that's, um, yeah, if you look at a book with this name uh, at, or with this uh, word as the title, uh, it should you should pause momentarily to decide on whether you're going to be reading a super racist book, parentheses, congratulatory, or a super racist book, parentheses, derogatory. And in this sense, it's whichever one is he's aware of that, and that's bad. Or, yeah. So Ford is aware of that and is aware that it's bad, rather. <laughs> yeah. And, and the book is an interrogation of how this belief came to life. And in that sense, uh, maybe I'm reaching the maximum amounts of time I'm allowed to say Foucault on, on, on an episode. But <laughs> It's exactly the kind of, and, and that's the vibe that the well-built city gives of 19th century society and the beginning collaboration between science, industry, social order, and so on. I'm sure it's not news to any of you that communists and homosexuals and the poor were all committed to the same asylums alongside the mentally ill, right? Because the definitions and, and the, the boundaries between illness, mistaken political beliefs, non-normative in the sense of they don't conform with the norm, sexual practices were all deleted by the the, the uh, collaboration between the state and science, which goes back to the idea of the world as supermarket, right? The state also wants to define the world because it can then control it. The market wants to define it so it can sell it, and they collaborate on both those things. That's why police protect property right that's why a bank window is more worthwhile than your fucking life and that's why police talk in terms like hygiene and sanitary right sanitizing a zone and so on it's all part of the same perception which again if you want to read you just need to read discipline and punish you don't have to listen to this podcast right <laughs> Both goes into it and does a fantastic job of describing it and that's exactly what's happening in um the book now what ford so this is the first big point I think that the book does, is that it interrogates how one resistance manifests to this type of control and all the subtle ways in which it grows under the noses of the people who think they are enforcing total rule. And the second, how the people who are most commonly um, 
using these tools are by their own definition degenerates. By their own definition. I don't think they're degenerate because I'm not a fucking physiognomist, right? <laughs> but this is the classic meme of why are people without chins talking about alpha males and the Aryan blood when they look like, you know, just a guy from Minnesota, right? Just like a dude. Uh, Hitler was not, did not look like the Aryan golden boy, right? Did not have a chiseled chin, was not even fucking blonde, man. He looks nothing like the, the, the epitome of human physique that he himself claimed to espouse. And that is a very interesting, in a Freudian sense, right? A very interesting observation. How these people who are, so look at incels, for example, right? That are glorifying the Chad, and yet they are the furthest from Chad possible. Now, that was an interesting case because they're talking about against the Chad, right? But they're still glorifying this, like, perfect specimen of human physique when they are not. Uh, and that's where clay sucking comes into play now i i need you guys to understand this guy <laughs> langdon langdon he, so he he comes in a glove god i love literature so there's this point where this guy <laughs> has like a sexual encounter um like uh like a trist and, and i'll get to that in a sec the the person he does it with and in order to so he wants to have sex with this person in fact he is feverishly freudian about it right that's like his repression bubbling up from inside of him but because again the 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 death drive right the attraction and repulsion of of sexual drive he wants to stay clean so what he does is he uses a glove as a condom now he comes instantly he says it like but it's a point of pride he says, I have trained myself so that I could come the instant that the intercourse starts. And to him, that's, <laughs> that's an advantage, right? Because, and this is brilliant. Yes, the tactical advantage on the field of war. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not saying this just as a joke, although it is extremely funny, extremely fucking funny. But it, it's a genius move on, on, on Ford's end because it captures the neurosis of this type of person because on one hand he's supposed to be a scientist right so he can't deny the fact that he is a person with a body and that the body wants to have sex needs to have sex right so he can't just be a celibate right uh in between the lines something that that was an actual thing in, in victorian societies um it's his duty to have sex right not to have sex is to is an illness but on the other hand, sex is so icky. Right? <laughs> yeah, you have it with a woman, which is, of course, the society is extremely misogynistic, and Clay is a turbo misogynist. Um, so you have it with a woman, and that's disgusting. Uh, so you need to separate yourself from the act as much as possible. And the act is not about pleasure or about performance, it's about duty. So getting rid of it as soon as possible like Langdon said, is a tactical advantage. Um, now, okay, anything you want to add before I keep ranting? It it, it comes in part from a uh, an understanding of sexual and romantic relations um, from the... So this actually gets back to a question of uh, 
what is queer. Um, yeah. So queerness requires, we're going to get a bit into queer theory. Um, just a touch. Uh, queer theory requires a resistance against a normative mode. That's really all it needs. This is where you get papers that otherwise read as nonsensical to certain people of um, how uh, queer bodies, which is a paper about drone warfare, um, gets clowned on by certain people, but it requires you to know that what's meant there is that queer means defying a normative standard, not strictly speaking, homosexuality. That's important because homosexuality wasn't always queer. Um, that's one of the lost histories of, um, and I'm talking about in the West too. This isn't like talking globally. This is in the West. Homosexuality wasn't always queer. And we lost that as part of certain social developments, um, that were bad because that's homophobic <laughs> and bad. Uh, but there was this thought that you would, like, sex was a duty, but specifically it was sex with a the opposite gender was a duty, because you have to make more people, you have to make heirs, but this is something you kind of put up with. You might fall in love with someone, but more often, they kind of expected you to be like, no, you're going to love one of the boys, or, you know, you're going to love one of your ladies-in-waiting, or something like that, because that's, you know, you got so much in common, you love chilling with them, vibing, you have all the same hobbies, and you just fuck each other all the time. But every now and again, you have to put on your big boy pants or your big girl pants, and you got to go have sex with your spouse <laughs> to to make a child. Um, yeah. But uh, this, this book kind of sets itself in a fantasy version of like the breaking ground of when that was fading but hadn't faded overlapped with the emerging race science um that was just deeply racist of the late 17 to like uh early 1900s yeah. um so it, it it's one of the first instances we get also the way that it's demonstrated that ford is uh to put some minds at ease acutely aware of how phenomenally shitty his main characters are like oh, yeah he this is, this is like so this is my second point because this is a <laughs> criticism of this person right yeah um, and it manifests <laughs> in the unbridgeable gap between how Clay and the master below, um, how they perceive themselves as these immensely powerful, but also immensely loved or feared um, characters. So they think that everybody is either looking up at them in awe or deeply in love with them and um, admiring them. And that is just not the case. But instead of Ford saying that at any point it's never said it's only in the tone and the things that they obviously miss um from the world around them and 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 by the way this book is from the first person perspective so ford is doing kind of like the the severian thing right like where a lot of the meaning of the book is hidden beneath and and to the side of what clay is not telling you and, and here's an example I, i'm gonna start by reading you the segment where he comes in a glove um, and then, and then uh, uh, a second one w in the beginning of Anamasobia by the way spoilers like I'm gonna like ruin the main twist of the, the book or whatever um, and, and we'll come back to that so here's the first segment as she lay on the marble slab of an old war monument beneath giant swaying oaks her skirts pulled up her legs pointing the way to the dog star I inserted my instrument of pleasure into the index finger of my leather gloves so as not to come in contact with her inferior chemistry. 
It was over in an instant, a technique I had worked diligently to perfect. I love you, I said, and left her there. The fact that he tells her that he loves her, like so. I when I read this paragraph, I was like, "This guy's pathetic. Like he sucks so much. Like think about the woman in this interaction. Like she is going to laugh at him forever, because other people in the setting, by the way, don't come into gloves. They just have sex. Um, and and the fact that he says that he loves her and then just leaves, like this guy is a child. He's he's a man child. But the thing is. He acts like he is the ruler of the universe. So this is when he runs into one of the first uh, people in, in, in Amasobia, another woman who um, presents her child so that Clay can read him, like using the, the physiognomy to tell her what this child is going to do in life. Um, brilliant, she asked as my eyes probed the child's form. Somewhat less, I said, but not exactly an idiot. Is there any hope, Your Honor? She asked after I had told her full well my conclusion. Madam, I said with exasperation, have you ever heard of a mule whose excrement is gold coin? No, she said. Nor have I. Good day. I told her and again turned north. Like, <laughs> <laughs> your baby, your baby fucking sucks. And also <laughs> you suck. Like, and that's how he speaks to everyone. That's how he talks to them. You're an idiot. You're stupid. You're a liar. You're an asshole. You'll never do anything. He's just bluntly cool. And of course, the image that should be conjuring up in your mind right now is that of the doctor, right? The aloof doctor who thinks his science allows him to clinically analyze and tear apart every single person on the planet and just see them as a use case in his charts and his diagrams. But the fact is, all of these people despise him. The male constantly makes fun of him. No one tells him anything that's going on. The people he stays with, which he, to be clear, he abuses them. Right? Like he makes their life hell. They're clearly conspiring to, to, to kill him or to poison him or, or to take him out in some way. And the entire village is simmering with insurrection and resistance to his authority, which he can't even see, right? Because he's so focused on how superior he is and how his physiognomy tells him everything he needs that he can't see that. He has no idea what's happening. I love our fucked up little man. <laughs> so... He sucks so bad. <laughs> he, he, he's, he's so awful. And the thing is, it's not just that he doesn't know what the people are doing. He also doesn't understand. Like, he, he knows to feel below, right? Below, by the way, some of the best passages on here is below drugs him all the time. He makes him an addict um, with something called the beauty. Um, and, and, and he knows to be aware of, of below like you're aware of... You know, don't bite the hand that feeds you, right? This this person, he's completely indebted to him. But he doesn't understand that the morality that he is applying to himself, clay, right? The, the rigor and the discipline, Below doesn't give a shit about any of that. And he's just like a beast waiting to be unleashed. And he is unleashed, right? Like he genocides the entire fucking village. 
And not only does he genocide the village, he doesn't even wait for Clay to finish his job, decides he's failed and exiles him to a prison island, which we'll talk about in a second. Langdon, do you want to tell us why this book is actually the vol? Uh, so I'll let, I'll let you take away talking about the, the <laughs> specifics of that. I did, I did have the exact, mo- we had hints of it prior to, um, not, not just talking about the twist itself, but, um, there are, um, there's prosaic turns and sort of techniques so like uh, pages of repeating lines and various things like that, that we were looking at it and we were, we're nodding to each other. We would, we would talk to each other in, in uh, Discord is like flash uh, like pages to each other. And uh, I forget which one of us clocked it first. But yeah. um, then it became so, like, I wonder how far it's going to go. I wonder if there's going to be bug stuff. And uh, there is. There is. <laughs> there is bug <laughs> stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so the fruit that comes from heaven, um, that whole storyline. So Anamasobia lives on, on the frontier and beyond the frontier is, is the great beyond and there things act um, differently. So again, echoing Heart of Darkness, like the deeper that you go into this territory, the more fucked up things become. And when you try to find where this food comes from or what happened there, you uh, come across weird creatures, devils, but also not proto-humans, but like another human race that's ancient. And most importantly, and most weirdly, probably the well-built city itself in the past. So this like jumps to the end of the book, but it's hinted that one of the things that you find in the Great Beyond is a ruined, abandoned city, and it's hinted that that is actually the well-built city in the future um, that has been abandoned. That's how the book ends, by the way, with the well-built city being completely abandoned. That part has like time travel. Uh, time loops, uh, uh, fruit affecting humans in weird ways. Like I said, non-humans who live really long and are also physically weird. So like, did Catling, rest in peace, read this book? And did it influence the vol? I don't see how you could say no. Like, there's so many yeah. parallels, <laughs> um, which is, I find super interesting. And those parts are really well written. However, the best part of this book is by far, the island colony. Now, I, I'm, I'm not going to say that I don't tend to hyperbole because I don't think that's true. I'm a very hyperbolic person, but... No, we're expressive, Eden. Expressive, <laughs> expressive. Sorry, you're right. Um, trust me when I say this is one of the best passages that I've read in the last few years. It is incredible. I could, I could literally not put it down. So, Clay fails, right? He... He uh, signals who he thinks is the thief of the food. It's not them. He got it completely wrong. And the physiognomy is trash, by the way. It doesn't do anything. It's bullshit. It's all made up. Um, But more importantly, he can't secure the food until Below comes around, genocides everyone, and and takes the food for for himself. Um, So once he fails, he is exiled to an island. On an island is several people, and it's not clear how many people, because one of them, or two of them, are either brothers, 
Well, one of them is the warden of the day, and the other is the warden of the night. Or they're the same person that the master has kind of like done a hemisphere split on. And now they have two personalities. Because the warden of the day is a raging fucking lunatic asshole that works clay near to death in the soulful minds and has worked countless people that clay has sentenced to exile in the soulful minds. But the watcher of the warden of the night um, is this nice guy. But they look exactly the same. But he's nice. He's empathetic. He helps Clay, you know, deal with things. There's also a monkey. <laughs> the monkey is called Silencio. Uh, he plays the piano. I, I love Silencio. Silencio I love is Silencio so much. Phenomenal. Uh, he makes drinks and cocktails. <laughs> he loves rum. And again, spoilers, as was revealed in the end of the book, he runs the place. Like he's the actual warden. And and the guys are like, just there. Because but, I had the vor in my head, I looked at him and I was like, I know what's going on with you, Silencio. Yeah, Silencio. On. And then Silencio. I was right, and I was like, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah that's so good. <laughs> I know, I know what you're doing, Silencio. So <laughs> as, so what's so good about this segment? One, the pacing of it is immaculate. It's divided between the day and the night, right? Like going into the mine working in the impossible heat and the sulfur and, and knowing clay knows that he's gonna die there and it's very much a um carapaces, right like going under to the underworld and then coming out metamorphosed like in greek mythology um he goes there to literally like sweat out all his sin and preconceptions and racism and and all the bad stuff he doesn't really achieve that but that's obviously what it's meant to do and he's supposed to die in there right and then in the night he gets refilled with something new, with friendship and empathy. And suddenly people that he doesn't judge, but um, sees them as his compatriots, or at least people willing to help him. Now, they're fooling him. They are, they are not that. It's all part of his torture. And when he tries to escape, it becomes very clear to him that Silencio is not on his side. But it's very clear that he's being subtly and psychologically manipulated, whether by these people, by below by something else, because this also ties into the weird metaphysical shit. The island also manifests the city. It manifests the city, the well-built city, but also the city on the outskirts, the ruins. Uh, it has dogs which hound you, and then the the wailings and the cries are heard, supposedly in in the place that is paradise, right? Like in a great beyond. There's a mix between time and space that is extremely subtle. And it hints into some really fascinating possibilities into what ha what's happening on the island. So there's um, a uh, there's a thing in literary studies that uh, you think you're supposed to think about if you get like a higher level degree. You're supposed to think about this a lot, and it's the idea of the concept of like a well ordered body, which um, I feel like the name could have been a riff on maybe oh, yeah. maybe it's not maybe it's just a fluke of it, like it is 100%. if you if you run across a house with people in it the house is also a head and the people are different aspects of a person they're they're a person talking to themselves even if the text doesn't seem like it's talking about that that's like in a certain way it metaphorically is because it came out of the mind of a writer and this is figments of a writer talking to themselves to work out a thought the writer has if there's a city it's made up of 
houses or cells, and these are also figments of a mind. The city is a mind, and then people are neurons or uh, like flashes of thought, or basically um, everything becomes either a body or a brain or a skull um, as a way for a thing to talk to itself. And uh, one thing that I like about fantasy novels is that they do this fucking literally. <laughs> they, they just, they're yeah. like, what if I make that super duper literally true, but in dream logic? Um, and, by, and by the way, this happens in his book as well. The city is the master's mind. And when the master starts suffering from um, episodes because he ate the fruit from paradise, he literally starts to blow up parts of the city with his mind as he forgets things. And it's it's one of those things where in in a standard piece of literature, when you're before you become aware of the sort of mode that underpins a great deal of art, we, we talk about it in art analytics because it seems to emerge even when people aren't necessarily aware that they're doing it. Um, this is, uh, in a certain way, the light side version of like a Campbellian uh, art critique, um, although technically art critique is already the light side of Campbellian um, analytics because... He wasn't very good as uh, like a cultural anthropologist, but as like a literary critic, he accidentally becomes pretty good. Not yeah. perfect, but pretty good. Um, that uh, before you learn it, you think, okay, well, maybe that's not true at all. That doesn't seem like it works. Then you think about it for a bit and you learn it and you, you have your conflicting feelings. And maybe in this point, you look at books that like do it literally like like this one. And you go, oh, that's a bit, it's a bit hackneyed, isn't it? To say it uh, literally. And then eventually you get to a point where it's like, no, that's just them sort of like, you know, it'd be like acknowledging in a show that there's a that there's a camera there. And you're like, no, no, that's fine. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> and it enables. I mention this because sometimes these more um, some people will read these things as heady or cerebral and other people will read them as pretentious or like artificial and getting in the way of actually just telling the story without interrupting yeah. to, to undermine it and ford is clearly in the elite third and final position which is like nah it's true though right it's true <laughs> uh and also wouldn't isn't it isn't that crazy um yeah because that's there's a level of imaginative verve that comes through this even when he's doing these subtle and very literary um thematic moves uh symbolic moves he, he focuses a lot on symbolic function and symbolic interrelation reminds me a lot of this is going to shock everyone piranesi um <laughs> uh who could have foreseen that comparison yeah. Yeah. um but he is uh similar to what's going on in the vor or like um uh 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 foreshadowing alan moore he's not afraid to like have fun he clearly loves the act of creating and just like throwing out the creative lightning and there's just i i really love the moments where you can tell he's feeling himself and he's just he's just diving into an idea he's like fuck yeah who cares about plot right now i'm i'm vibing and i'm yeah. like oh <laughs> I, I I very much agree with you, and I think Ford, to quote you, like the third elite position is also like this is good because the metaphor opens up new avenues of thought, which would not have been possible if I had not taken it to the literary extreme by saying no. This is actually this is not a metaphor. This is actually physically the case. <laughs> it actually bleeds back into the metaphor, 
and does interesting things with it, which is the final point and the whole point of this book, I think, when everything coalesces back into the city and the master is overthrown. And there is a popular insurrection, which again, he knows nothing about, even though he supposedly has this army of physiognomists that are supposed to tell him what his people are thinking, which is of course uh, like a stab at the state and how impotent it is at actually controlling the populace. But the point is that the master destroys the city himself with his greed and his lust after the food of paradise and immortality, right? Um, he, He eats it and, as I said, starts to have these migraines, which cause him, as he forgets things, to literally blow up structures. Then it's it's revealed that the well-built city is actually a memory palace, but like a physical memory palace that the master went and built. And now that when shit is exploding inside his mind, actual parts of the city are destroyed. And everything comes back into this idea. The entire book is like I already said, and I'm going to say it explicitly, is exploring the neurosis of people in power. And I really like that point because what it's saying is the people in power are not like you. Like you're correct. Celebrity worship, worshiping politicians, all that shit. You're correct by thinking of them as not exactly like yourself but you put them above where i put them below it's not that they're different because they're superior to you it they're different because they're inferior to you these people are riddled with neurosis mental illness anxieties fears phobias and any other sort of like um maladjusted coping mechanisms that you can think about. The master is a paranoid, but he's he sucks at it. Right? Like he's not even a good paranoid. He's not even able to control uh, obsessively all of the elements around him. Uh, uh, a clay, even after his transformation and his calabasis and his metamorphosis, he still doesn't understand what's happening. He comes back. This is one of the funniest parts in the book. He comes back and he thinks people flipping them off, <laughs> flipping him off, are giving him like a revolutionary signal that is shared between them. They're, they're telling they're telling him to fuck off and he doesn't get it. And then they make fun of the glove thing. That, that lover of his, she's a socialite and she tells people when he comes back to the city that he came into the glove. And they have this symbol that they make, which is like his tiny penis in the glove. And he thinks they're like secretly communicating to him some sort of like revolutionary intent. It's hilarious. Like he has no fucking idea how humans work. There's another cadre of like ministers and people who run the actual government. And they're all useless incompetents that are like sycophants around below. And obviously, of course, the city ends up collapsing. But it's not about the city collapsing. It's about the mental state of these people literally imploding into uh, under its own weight. And by the way, the second book uh, in the trilogy that I have not yet read, but it was on my list, obviously, is Clay going back into the city, finding below asleep and going into his dreams. Right? Uh, And exploring what's going on there. That that, that sounds like it's going to be fucking weird. Right? But like this exploration of the... I'm going to be a bit more... Uh, flagrant than I usually am in talking about this because I'm talking about the bad guys now. The mental disease that they suffer from, right? The the absolute corrosion of their brains and, and their psyches by power, by the thirst for control, 
it's just such a powerful way um, to conceptualize these these problems and these people. And Ford is, is like an expert at this. He does it so fucking well because, like we said, and we joke about this a lot, like creating a protagonist that the reader absolutely despises, but that they still finish the book, that's that's phenomenal. That's yes. like a, a stroke of genius. Like you actively despise the person who is the voice telling you the story. And yet you stick with the story because it's so incisive into the, the mind of this person that you that you hate. And to do it so subtly without spelling any of this out in the book itself is why this won a fucking world fantasy award, right? Like this is a this is a literary masterpiece, I would say, in in how subtle it's able to um, what is what is the metaphor I'm looking for? Like, n- sorry for the Philip Pullman reference, right? But the subtle knife, right? Look, like, you don't have to apologize. He's brilliant. Uh, he is. I, I really like his dark materials for all its like problematic shit. Um, I like, was I was all fucked up because I put off reading it when I was younger because I was like, nah, I've read Dune. I'm not reading books for kids. And then I read it in my like <laughs> mid twenties, and I read all three of them in I think like four days. And I was like, yeah, damn, these are actually pretty good. It's very good. So but, flawed, but good. Yeah, like, for sure. But but the idea of this, like the thin knife, or if we want to go to directly to Herbert, right? Like the slow knife penetrates the shield. That yeah. is exactly what Four does on on physiognomy, and he does it extremely well. Also, there's a green man. So if you want to do like a whole Gene Wolf tie-in, we could do that. Time travel. There's a green man. Time like eats itself, immortality, it, blah blah blah. He definitely is riffing on similar things. This shouldn't really be shocking to anyone. Gene Wolf being massively influential to a work of weird science fiction that should be very yeah. obvious. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I guess those are those are my last thoughts. If if you're looking for a weird book, but it's not it's not weird like the new sun. It's not going to have you, you know, like tying knots around your own brain and trying to decipher what's happening. But it will keep you on your toes and you will have to read past the textual level into the context and into some of the hints that you're receiving. Um, and will also just make you hate a guy. Like really hate a guy. Um, and is expertly written, then you should definitely read this one and i am very much planning on reading the the sequels uh because i can't wait to see where else um ford uh has taken this what i'm about to say is going to sound like a critique to some people but those of the elite mind will know that it's not this is like an inferior fusion of book of the new sun and the vor just combining things we'd said before the the fact that i can say that it is a fusion whatsoever of those is already (laughs) far more of a compliment than the admittedly sure it doesn't clear the high bar of being better than potentially the best science fiction work of all time and i hesitate to say that the vor is potentially one of the best fantasy works of all time but only because i i read it relatively recently and i don't want to be too hyperbolic but i love it so fucking much that like i want to be clear that i'm fighting the urge to say that um and that i could see someone saying that later um the fact that it doesn't clear that extremely high bar is not in any way a failing that's like uh be like listening to a metal record and being like, well, it's no ride the lightning. And sounds like, obviously like, <laughs> duh. Um, uh, yeah. It's cause like at the end of the day, 
the the way that the prose flows and functions feels like you're reading like honey syrup poetry and for me a lot of the it's not that i don't like more spare prose as well or things like that but that sense of like there's so much like psychedelic depth to the prose that's the thing that made me and gareth go over um the invisibles as well as all the different comics that we have why we plan on covering um grant morrison's debut novel why all three of us love literary stuff why we covered the vor like that heft and verve to it is like for my mind the the perfect counterbalancing point for the more stripped uh and analytical and materially minded end of like the marxist end of my brain that's that's the part that fleshes out that's the flesh to the Marxist skeleton that, that makes a full person. Um, and this book was just fucking brimming with that. Um, uh, and I really love how he structured it specifically as a trilogy in the sense that I may or may not wind up reading the last two, but not because I'm not interested, just because it feels like he went all the yeah. conceptual heft I want to put here in book one and if you like what's going on here if you have more um plot ideas or you just want to see more symbolic development you can keep reading but you can also read book one and feel good walking away from it you're not going to feel at a yeah. loss I and i'm so. like that's that's the mark of a good ass writer his trilogy is not one long book that he failed to edit it feels like it's three books yeah i get 100 uh you want to take us out with music uh sure trying to figure out exactly what i uh want to i have one in the the chamber if you want me to uh well you mentioned the one in the chamber while i'm looking at some stuff my brain has been uh eden and i are in the current hell that is end of year list making um yeah don't don't talk to me about that yeah that's right uh so my brain has completely shifted gears i could oh actually um yeah there's this um there's this band that i found recently um called uh god alone oh yeah um they went through the same circles that both eden and i are in um we probably heard about them from the same person without realizing we're looking at the same thread that kind of thing um (laughs) it's uh they're a Imagine the more mathy end of uh, like post metal and post rock. Um, it's not quite to the point of being. I'm failing to describe it. It's like it's like if math rock was dancey, but then also had these like metallic, um, heavier breakdowns in it. Um, yeah. It, I don't know. It's just. I got really uh, uh, mad last month when drafting, uh, or not last month, the last couple of weeks when I was drafting the most recent um, column entry for me for Mining Metal of looking at different people talk about what is or isn't metal. It's the the constant endless fucking bullshit of people in metal space. Um, Love the music, really don't care for most of the people. Um, And this was one of the bands that I put in because I'm like, is it metal? Fuck you. I'm my, I'm making the column. It's metal. <laughs> it, 
and the most important part being it's a good ass record and it has like that verve. Also, yeah. they played at Art Tangent, which has slowly become probably like my favorite festival. The best music festival. Yeah, they just the best they festival. book they book all the bands that I like. Yeah, hundred percent. I can read Amazing. eleven lines of band names and like all of them. That's crazy. Um, yeah. So this is a song called Kung Fu Treachery. It's on the longer side, but it's just it's so fucking good. Um, and it also reminds me a lot of the new Horse Lords, which is also um, out now and is fucking incredible. If you haven't heard Horse Lords, check them out. But we're going to feature uh, Kung Fu Treachery by uh, God Alone. Mm-hmm. 